Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This week on The Science Revolution, about that happiness. Is it time to stop being so careful? Is spontaneity the key to happiness? Professor Janice Brainy is here on plastic rain pouring down in our national parks and everywhere. Tony Corbo with Food and Water Watch drops by to warn Americans the USDA is trying to outsource chicken processing to China and what that means. Stay tuned. We're all familiar with the crisis of plastic bottles and disposable plastic and plastic bags getting into our oceans and plastic living forever in our landfills. But plastic rain? This is extraordinary. On the line with us is biogeochemist and assistant professor at Utah State University, Janice Brainy. Dr. Brainy is the lead author on the new paper about plastic rain. Her website is Janice, B-R-A-H-N-E-Y dot Weebly dot com. And her uh, Twitter handle is J-B-R-A-H-N-E-Y. Dr. Brainy, welcome to the program. Tell us about this plastic rain. We actually set out to try to understand how dust might be influencing remote ecosystems. But instead, what we found was a whole lot of plastic coming out of the sky, both with rain and under dry conditions. So this is a presumably microscopic plastic, the little tiny particles that have been worn by weather over the years from the giant piles of plastic we've got around? Or is this something from industrial processes like manufacturing? So a little bit of both. Most of what we saw were fragments of clothing. So we saw a lot of fibers that were polyester or nylon or typically associated with clothing. But we also saw a lot of fragments of plastic that we couldn't identify what their original source was, but very brightly colored primary plastics. So plastics that were in their original form. So we saw a lot of brightly colored microbeads which are most likely coming from paint. Wow. Wow. So, and this is, if rain fell on your hand and you looked carefully at it, you still wouldn't see these, right? I mean, we're talking so small you'd have to look at a microscope? Right. They're very, very small. So about the width of a human hair or much, much smaller. Wow, that's remarkable. What are the biological consequences of this? I saw from the paper a thousand tons a year of microplastics raining out of the sky worldwide. What does that do to the plants and what does that do to the animals and what does that do to us ultimately? I mean, to what extent is this in our water supply as well? Yeah, those are all great questions that we don't have a lot of answers to. We do know that we we can breathe in these particles and they can get lodged in our lung tissue and that likely doesn't have any benefits to us. Um, there has been a little bit of work showing that it does lead to inflammatory responses and that it could lead to more serious health consequences, just like any other aerosol in the atmosphere. 
but we don't really know too much more than that. With respect to animals and plants, there's been a lot more work done in the marine environment where they've shown that marine organisms accidentally consume plastics and that has a lot of detrimental consequences to maybe physically it could cause blockages in their intestinal tract or could lead to other kinds of negative effects from transferring toxins, for example. There haven't been very many studies in terrestrial environments on terrestrial insects And there's been a number of studies on soils because we often add plastics to soils as mulch to change some of their physical properties, like increasing the the temperature and retaining soil moisture. But some studies have started to show that these short-term benefits are offset by long-term negative consequences to soil health. So there has been some suggestion that it can change how nutrients are recycled in the soil as well as how well plants grow. Wow. And not just humans. I I assume probably most complex animals have at least two organs that are primarily, principal purpose is filtration and metabolism of things that we've ingested, the liver and the kidneys. It seems like these would be places where microplastic might be particularly problematic. Is this just such a brand new field that we don't know what's going on, or is there some evidence that there's a concern here? I think we should definitely be concerned. I I can't imagine that breathing in plastic or ingesting plastic is good for us in any way. I'm not a human biologist, so I don't understand the Mm. consequences to humans. There just isn't a lot of work done on this yet, I think, because we're only just starting to realize the scale of the problem. It's only been in the last year that we started to see um, more and more evidence of a lot of plastics in our atmosphere and, and where they might be coming from. We're talking with biogeochemist Professor Janice Brainy, assistant professor at Utah State University, lead author on this new paper about plastic rain. Dr. Brainy, what what should we do about this? Where do we begin, assuming that this is not a good thing? And also, assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that probably a lot of this plastic that's falling, you know, raining out of the sky for the time it would take for these particles to get ground down this small if they started out as pieces of clothing and things, This plastic might be 10, 20, 30, 50 years old? Yeah, yeah. A lot of the plastics that we're seeing, we assume, are quite old. And one of the ways that we decided that was because we were able to show that some of the plastics are coming from really, really far away. We were only able to show that a small proportion of the plastics were coming from nearby cities. So what that tells us is that a lot of what we're seeing is this recycling of plastic around the surface of the earth. And so much of it is pretty old. So does this mean that the areas that we think of as pristine, whether it's the, you know, the Himalayas, uh, you know, Mount Everest or the Amazonian rainforest, the Amazon basin, that they're not really so pristine that already they're just laced with plastics as a result of just the rain coming to them and through them? That's right. Yeah. The atmosphere is very effective at distributing all kinds of contaminants to really remote locations. And now we know it's also um, plastic that is just about everywhere. There's technology in Germany that actually we showed it in a movie recently to extract carbon from the atmosphere. Is, is this the sort of thing where we should be talking about extracting this stuff out of, out of the environment or is it just the only response, that, appropriate response that we can do is to stop it from going into the environment? I think stopping from going, it going into the environment, I think that the scale of large scale atmospheric filtration might 
not be very efficient. And I hope that what by showing what the ultimate sources are of the plastics in the environment, that could help lead to technologies that might limit emissions to the atmosphere or into the environment, as well as to develop better waste management strategies. Yeah, it's just remarkable research you're doing, uh, Dr. Brennan. Thank you so much for, for doing this research and for dropping by and talking with us about it. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Professor Janice Brainy, a biogeochemist and assistant professor at Utah State University. Her website is janicebrahneyweebly.com for more information. And you can tweet her at jlbrainy, B-R-A-H-N-E-Y. It was all fake. Meat shortage, that is. Seriously. The headline over at rawstory.com, it was a fake meat shortage. The reality is, and there's pieces today in the New York Times and the and USA Today, excuse me, pointing this out, that the industry, when the meat industry, first of all, you had COVID discovered in a bunch of packing plants, okay? Smithfield was at the top of that list. Smithfield is the largest pork producer in the United States. They are owned by the Chinese. Let that sink in for a minute. And during the month of April, in the United States, we shipped 129,000 tons of pork to China. So we get the infections. The Chinese company that owns Smithfield gets the profit. The profit doesn't even go to the United States. We get the infections, we get to pay for the hospitalizations, we have our people die, and China gets 129,000 tons of pork in just one month, just the month of April, when this was just like exploding. And so word gets out about the meat packing plants, and I think probably, you know, credit where credit's due, Rachel Maddow really was the one who broke this story in a big way over on MSNBC. The meat processing industry immediately started issuing press releases saying there's going to be a meat shortage, which freaked people out. Wendy's was like, oh, my God, you know, we know we're going to have to dial back on burgers. And some stores started rationing meat because people were buying meat like they were buying toilet paper. There was never a meat shortage. Literally, there was never a meat shortage. And in the midst of the so-called meat shortage, we were shipping hundreds of thousands of tons of pork and beef and you know the chicken producers in the United States just got permission from the Trump administration to ship you know the slaughtered chicken to China where they will be processed by low-wage workers and then they will ship you know the breasts and thighs and legs and stuff back here to the United States for you and me to eat uh, well not for me to eat but <laughs> for those of you who eat birds to eat and uh, I mean this is this is just mind-boggling the Orlando Sun Sentinel has done some really good reporting on this. Michael Corkery and David Yaffe Bellani reporting Smithfield Foods was the first company to warn in April that the coronavirus pandemic was pushing the United States. And this is a quote from Smithfield Foods, the Chinese owned pork producer here in the United States that produces pork here in the United States for export to China, the largest pork producer in, the, in America. Smithfield Foods said, quote, the United States is perilously close to the edge in terms of our meat supply. That was back in April. That same month, just Smithfield, 
sent 9,170 tons of pork to Americans? No, to Chinese. Now, frankly, I think the whole factory farming industry should be dismantled and people who want to eat meat should have their own chickens and cows and dogs and whatever, whatever meat they want to eat. But no, not dogs. Actually, in my mind, I mean, these are, these are all sentient beings. Smithfield was bought, by the way, by the Chinese in 2013. So far, 25,523 meatpackers in the United States have contracted the virus. 89 have died. You know, over 600 doctors and nurses have died in the United States. Can you imagine what the Republican Party would be saying right now if 600 doctors and nurses and 89 meatpackers had died because of decisions that Barack Obama made? Can you friggin' imagine how we would respond to that? Well, it turns out that what the industry was doing during this time was a slick little sleight of hand. Not only were they saying, oh, there's a meat shortage coming. If we have to, you know, we've got to be able to cram our workers in. So, number one, they got Donald Trump to issue an executive order saying that meatpacking plants have to open back up, which is, of course, what they wanted. The owners of these factories aren't showing up. They're not working. They're not on the line. They're not going to get COVID. They're sheltering in place in their mansions or living in China. So, you know, it's just the workers. Who gives a rat's ass about the workers, right? In, in Trump world, in Republican world. So you've got some dead workers. Eh, eh they were mostly, mostly black and Hispanic anyway. Right? That was the other thing that was promoted. You know, fewer than a quarter of the people who work in meat processing plants are white. So therefore, they're disposable people. I mean, that, that was the, the entire subtext that we were hearing on Fox, Fox so-called news and right-wing hate media. And then they lobbied the Trump administration to give them an elimination of liability. Those workers, when they get sick and they get hit with bills of as much as a million dollars. A guy, a, a guy a couple days ago is, is all over the news. Um, sorry, I don't have the story right in front of me, so I can't give you his name, but um, got COVID, went to the hospital, got admitted, ended up getting really sick. He was in the ICU. He was on a ventilator. He recovered. He went home, and he got a bill for $1.1 million. Other people have shown up at hospitals with sore throats and coughs, the symptoms of COVID, and feeling like crap, and they get the COVID test, and whether it's positive or negative, they get home, and there's a bill for $2,000. We're literally the only country in the world that does this. But in any case, the Trump administration was lobbied by the meat processing industry Help us force our workers to go back to work. And, you know, this was pioneered by the pork and chicken producers and beef producers across the country. And, and we've seen, you know, the major outbreaks in this country have been in nursing homes, which are, you know, Sima Virma is, you know, the head of the Health and Human Services, HHS, is supposed to be uh, responsible for this. <laughs> right. Uh, nursing homes, which are, are, you know, federally regulated, but not. There's no oversight. And meatpacking plants. And this is just exploding across the country. So now, so A, they got Trump to say, okay, you must reopen. 
Cool, that's what we wanted. And the workers, you must go back to work, and if you don't go back to work, you can't get unemployment benefits. And now, Anthony Scalia's son, Eugene Scalia, who is a lawyer who spent his whole life lobbying, working against unions, is in charge of the Department of Labor, the organization that oversees unions and labor in general. And Scalia is working with governors in red states to prevent people from getting unemployment benefits if they're afraid to go back to work because, you know, maybe they're over 40, which means, you know, you have a much higher chance of dying. Or maybe they're overweight or they've got diabetes or heart condition or asthma. Any of those things that might cause you to die pretty easily if you get COVID. You would think they could say, you know, I'm not going to go back to work, at least not for that pay, and risk my life. But no, Eugene Scalia and Donald Trump and the Republicans in Congress, no. Tough luck. got a, a note this morning from one of the largest pharmacies in Canada that ships to the United States. They've got a lot of U.S. citizens who are customers of theirs. And I was one a number of years ago, and I'm still on their list. And it says, continued increase in the broad range of pharmaceutical products going out of stock. It's been experienced by distributors worldwide, including in the U.S. Most of the products with an out-of-stock status have no estimated restock date, which is very unusual. This is very concerning because we've never seen so many products out of stock in the history of our business. For example, the antidepressant Zoloft is now unavailable worldwide. Why? Because it comes out of China. The, the raw ingredients are almost exclusively made in China, and then the pills are processed in India. And China's having problems with COVID, and so it's a meltdown. Let's expand that logic to chicken. Says uh, the Trump administration. Tony Corbo is on the line with us. He is the senior government affairs representative with Food and Water Watch and Food and Water Action. Food and A-N-D. Foodandwaterwatch.org is the website. And Food and Water Watch also is the Twitter handle. Tony, welcome to the program. Tell us what the deal is here. What's the connection between chicken being grown in the United States and China? This has been going on for 15 years now. China has wanted to export poultry to the United States. It came about as a result of our mad cow case in, in 2003, where China was a big importer of U.S. beef, and then they stopped importing because of the mad cow case that was found here. And so when USDA attempted to restore our export market to China for beef, China came back and said, we want to be able to export poultry to the United States in exchange. In 2005, the George W. Bush administration proposed a rule that would allow China to export uh, poultry to the United States, but they put in a condition that the slaughtered chicken would have to come from an approved source. And at the time, the only approved sources were the U.S. and Canada. And we would ship the raw carcass over to China. They would process it, cook it, and then send it back here. And so in 2006, even though the USDA received many comments, most of them opposed to this scheme, USDA approved granting China equivalency status for their processing inspection system. But China was not satisfied with that. 
they kept on pressing USDA for their ability to process and slaughter their own poultry to send to the United States. And so while we haven't received too much chicken under the provisions of the 2006 rule, there was only one shipment, and then that happened in 2017, of 110 pounds of breaded chicken nuggets and, and patties. China has consistently tried to get USDA to let them ship their own poultry to the United States. And sure enough, in 2019, as part of the deal that the Trump administration signed with China to lessen the tensions in the trade war that the Trump administration essentially caused, USDA finally gave the go-ahead for China to ship its own poultry to the United States. They haven't done so yet, but it sets up the system for China to export to the United States. Now, outside of the obvious, anything made in China is taking jobs away from the United States and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I say that, you know, with some ambivalence as somebody who doesn't eat birds, you know, as a, as a vegetarian, an occasional pescatarian, I suppose. But why should we be concerned about the fact that our chicken might start coming from China? Well, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, China's food safety record is very checkered. One of the reasons that USDA would not allow, originally would not allow China to ship its own poultry here to the United States is that China hid for the longest periods of time the extent to which their poultry flocks were infected with high pathogenic avian influenza. So that was one of the restrictions that was placed originally. What's interesting that's happened fairly recently is that China has now designated two Cargill plants. Cargill built plants in China for poultry slaughter and poultry processing. And so now those two plants, they constitute half of the approved plants that China has designated being able to export to the United States. One of the new Cargill plants has the ability to slaughter 225 birds per minute. The current maximum here in the United States, even under a deregulated inspection system, is 175. So we're fearing what's going to happen here is that eventually U.S. companies are going to start outsourcing their chicken processing abroad, and specifically China. Now, Cargill is not the only company that has plants there. Tyson has plants in China. Keystone Foods has plants in China. OSI has plants in China. So it could be just a matter of time before China starts designating those factories to be able to export to the United States. There's been all sorts of controversy over the safety of our poultry plants, our meatpacking plants, and it's really been highlighted during this COVID crisis here in the United States. Right. So why not ship everything off to China, have them process it, because those workers don't have the, the same, the same so, rights. Right. So right now we are desperately freaked out because drugs are not available in the United States because they're all made in China. Pretty soon it might be food is not available in the United States because it's made in China. 70% of our apple juice is actually imported from China right now. A lot of our seafood is imported from China. So poultry could be the very next thing that winds up shifting abroad. And this is just so that giant companies like Cargill can kill more chickens per hour and pay their workers lower wages than they're paying the people, uh, which are probably already fairly low wages here in the United States to uh, slaughter and process and, and raise, for that matter, these chickens. Is this going to put American farmers out of business? 
it could very well put American farmers out of business if these companies, I mean, you have these unfair contracting practices here to begin with, the big poultry companies that essentially pay farmers peanuts to raise the poultry that's eventually slaughtered in these big factories here in the United States. And so it could very well shift the production abroad. Tony Cordo with Food and Water Watch, foodandwaterwatch.org, the website. Tony, thanks for dropping by. Thank you for having me on, Tom. It's like Trump has given all his lip service to stopping China. It's like, hey, let's outsource chicken to China, just like we outsource toys and pharmaceuticals and electronics and fill in the blank. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, it, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. Newleafnaturals.com. Geeky science here. Many people avoid change and other people embrace change and you know there's been speculation through the years about what are the personality characteristics that cause us to embrace change or fear change and certainly there's life circumstances and there may even be neurological baselines you know uh, like people who quote could be diagnosed as ADHD or hunters seem to have a really high threshold for change. In other words, it takes a lot of change before they start freaking out a little bit. Whereas the farmers among us, the people who grew up to be CPAs and bookkeepers and whatnot, tend to be you know, more, no, I don't want change. We'll just do this one thing forever. Well, how does this affect happiness? There's a fascinating study that was just recently published. It was a poll of 2,000 Americans And what they found was that the people who score highest on spontaneity, which you could describe, and for the purposes of the study they describe, as rapid decision-making. What shall I do today? Oh, hey, let's go to that Ethiopian restaurant. Or let's go climb a mountain, or whatever it may be. People who make spontaneous decisions are substantially, measurably, 40%, in fact, more likely to be happy to define themselves, to see themselves as a happy person, and to uh, score well on satisfaction of life indexes. 38% more likely to be content and satisfied with their life. The study was commissioned by Cub Cadet. This was a fairly comprehensive study. They found that the average American makes 6,700 spontaneous decisions a year. That's an average of 18 times a day. Where you're going to go for lunch, you're going to take a different road to work, things like that. One in six describe themselves as not spontaneous, but even among those one-sixth of people who say, no, I'm not spontaneous, when they asked them about the last few spontaneous decisions that they made, because we all do that, 72% of them said that after those decisions, they felt happier. 
So it's not just you know buying a different color shirt, although that's kind of a percentage of it. 59% of respondents said that they've made major life-altering decisions spontaneously. I, I can tell you, certainly Louise and I have throughout our lives. We've changed our lives so many different times. Moving to Europe, quitting a job, adopting a dog. And 88% of the people who made major life decisions Hey, take this job and shove it. I'm going to find something, you know, whatever. 88% reported that afterwards they felt much better, and 82% described that afterwards life was actually better. So fascinating stuff. Consider a little spontaneity in your life. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.